Go ahead and turn to Acts 18. We're going to continue our study, our verse-by-verse, line-by-line study through the book of Acts. Now, as I, I kind of alluded to this, but something that, you know, Elijah is, is a senior at that age in life, something he's probably been asking himself over this last year of school, um, you know, is, is that kind of question that we can all ask ourselves that throughout our life, and especially if we've got, like, some big decision to make at some point, and that is, what does God want me to do? What is God's will for my life? And I think it's safe to say that we all want to know that as followers of Jesus Christ. And even if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ and you're visiting today, you probably at some point have wondered that same question. What is my purpose in life? Why am I here? What should I do in this situation? And the reality why we wonder that is simply because we just don't know what to do a lot of the time, right? I mean, we can think we know what to do, but it's never a sure bet that what we want to do is going to lead to something good in our lives. And that's what we're all wanting. We're wanting to not make mistakes. We're not wanting to make bad decisions. And there's no way you can guarantee anything you do in your own power and your own understanding is going to lead to something good for you. So we wonder, what should we do? And seeing how God tells us in his word that everything he has for us, everything that he wants us to do, Anything he tells us blatantly in his word or anything specifically he has for your life is always with your best interest in mind. It's always for your good. So therefore, that sounds pretty good to me. I want to know what God wants for me. And whereas I would guess the majority of us would agree with that, we'd say, yes, that sounds good. I want what the Lord wants for my life. How many of you can relate to the fact that it's not always easy to understand or to know what is God's will in any given situation, right? I mean, we spend a lot of time trying to figure that out. It's like, yes, I want God's will. Amen. But how do I figure that out? How do I know what's God's will in my life? And, and the crazy thing is, you know, we wonder these things despite the fact that God's word clearly tells us that he does have a specific will for each of us. And that he wants to lead us into it. It's not supposed to be some mystical thing that we're always wondering about. But really, it's, it's some things we struggle with in our flesh, like waiting on timing or things not lining up with what we see as best that cause us or basically get in the way of us knowing what God's will in our life. And we'll talk about that a little more today. But the reason I'm kind of hitting on this is because Paul is somebody that we see all throughout his life in Scripture be somebody that wanted to follow God's will in his life. And time and time again, you see him using that term like it was not the Lord's will for us to do this thing or the Holy Spirit stopped us. Or, you know, if, if you today we're going to see if you want me to if if, if I, you guys want me to do this thing, but only if the Lord wills, he was always wanting to be. That was the most important thing for him to be in the father's will for him. So it's a great opportunity to look at his life and talk about these things, all right? So just to give you a recap of where we ended last week, we went through verses, uh, the first 11 verses in Acts 18. Saw Paul go to Corinth. He goes and preaches the gospel like he normally does to the Jewish people at the synagogue, trying to use the word of God to prove to them that Jesus is the Messiah. And then he, he doesn't get very good success there, so he moves on and he starts preaching to the Gentiles or those that weren't uh, Jewish believers in in Corinth and we saw God tell him not to be afraid and we talked about how he must have been dealing with fear for God to specifically tell him don't be afraid 
And the, the, the reasons God gives him why he didn't have to be afraid were, number one, because God was with him. And we talked about how that in itself, to be reminded that God is with you is enough not to be afraid of anything, right? Because if God is with you, and as it says in Romans 8, he's for you and not against you, you're untouchable. You really are. That doesn't mean that nothing bad will happen to you in his life, but as God says, he will work all those, even the bad things, for your good. And he can keep that promise. So the fact that he's with you means you don't have to be afraid. But then on addition, in addition to that, he gives him some specific promises, just like he's given us tons of promises in his word that are all applicable to you. They all apply to you, not because of anything you've done or not done, but through your faith in Jesus, you've received them. And there are all these promises that are for your betterment. They're for good. So we truly have been given no reason to be afraid. And he's reminding Paul of that. And Paul's obviously encouraged by that because he doesn't quit. He keeps going. He actually stays in Corinth for longer than anywhere else for like a a year and a half, continuing to preach the word and and, and teach the word of the people there. And that's where we're going to pick it up in Acts 18. So let me pray and we'll start breaking this section of scripture down. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, I thank you again that the power is in your word. This is one of those mornings where I'm just feeling very weak in myself. But in, in my weakness, you are strong, just as Paul said. Thankful for that reminder that he gives us that it's our insufficiency that actually qualifies us to be used by you because it allows people to see your glory and your strength and your might when we're weak. And Lord, you are faithful. Even on this day that we celebrate Pentecost, we celebrate Jesus ascending to sit at the right hand of the Father and the Holy Spirit coming down upon your church to empower us to do your will. We celebrate that because there's no way we could do it apart from you. So may you in your in your power and the power of your spirit just move through the teaching of your word today in such a way that it renews our minds, as Paul says. It conforms us to the image of your son. It changes us so that we can experience that blessed life you intend for us. So we can leave here closer to you and more like you than when we came. And all God's people said, amen. All right. So starting in verse 12, bear with me. There are a lot of names today that are names that we don't normally use. And I study how to pronounce them, but sometimes they get a little confusing. It says verse 12, but when Gallio was proconsul, or basically what that was, was kind of like the Roman governor of a province. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews, um, this would be the Jewish religious leaders and those following them, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, which the tribunal would be kind of like the court of justice in this area, led by the Romans. So they brought him before the tribunal saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, or in essence, if he was actually breaking the law, oh Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. So 
In response to Paul's continued efforts in preaching the good news of Jesus Christ in Corinth, remember that he went to the synagogue, preached to the Jews first. They didn't really receive what he was saying, so he kind of dusted himself off, said, all right, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. But he keeps preaching the word of God. And these Jews are not happy with that because it's contrary to their Jewish religion, and they want him to stop. So they bring him to the Roman governor of the area, Gallio, accusing him of basically teaching something contrary to their religion, to their laws. And they hope that he would sympathize with them, maybe in kind of thinking that maybe Paul's creating a ruckus and the Romans didn't like that because they didn't want uprisings. Or, you know, just agreeing with them for some other reason. They're hoping that he agrees with them because if he agrees with them, then it kind of sets a precedent that he can't go on outwardly preaching the gospel in this province or any other province under Roman rule. So that's what they're hoping. But he sees his role as a government official, Gallio does as a government official, not to delete or deal with religious matters, basically separation of church and state. And he basically tells them, you know, if this guy broke a law, like a Roman law, I'd get involved. But since it has to do with your guys' rules and your religion, you know, you guys figure it out yourself. That's not really for me to deal with. Which, by the way, I'll point out, fulfilled one of God's promises to Paul back from verse 10. Remember when God told him that anyone that comes against you, they're not going to be allowed to harm you in Corinth. And so here these guys come against him. And sure, certainly they would have liked to seen him punished like he was in some of the other places he went. But God protects him here. All right. It says in verse 17, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So this guy named Sosthenes comes on the scene here. And we don't know a whole lot about him other than that he's the ruler of the synagogue. And for some reason reason or another, the focus of the crowd and their aggression turns towards him. And he gets beat up in front of this, this Roman court. Gallio doesn't do anything about it. Now, Sosthenes must be the replacement for Crispus. If you remember back in verse 8, there was a different ruler of the synagogue, Crispus. He gets saved. Obviously, the Jews wouldn't want him to rule the synagogue as a Christian. So this, this guy, Sosthenes, must have replaced him. And it isn't really clear why they're beating him or who it is that's beating him. We don't know if it was the Jews beating him because maybe they didn't feel he argued their case well enough. Maybe he was somehow in charge of that and he kind of didn't wasn't successful out of it so they beat him we don't know if the greeks beat him because they were just annoyed that he would bring some religious matter before their court of justice we don't know if it was both of them and kind of it was just like oh yeah there's a guy let's beat him up and, and it just became kind of like a riot don't know but here's the thing i want to point out if you go to first corinthians 1 1 you don't have to go there right now you can go later but it says paul refers to this sosthenes as a believer so at some point he ends up getting saved and i couldn't help but thinking maybe that was a result of this beating because sometimes it takes getting us getting beat up in life for the lord to be able to get our attention god most certainly does not want it to get to that point before you come to a saving knowledge of him but it really being up to us regarding how bad things have to get in our lives before we realize we need to be saved from them And we need God's help to do it. God, by his great grace, even being able to take something as horrible 
is being built, built, like whatever it is that gets you beat to that low place and turning it around for the greatest good in your life, and that is to save you. How many of you had to be brought to a pretty low place in your life before you realized your need for Jesus to save you? I was one of those people. I was devastated. I was low. I didn't know what to do. Distraught, all that stuff. And the the first person I thought to talk to was this college pastor that I had been exposed to. And, and God used that to show me my need to be saved. That, that show me my need for help. I couldn't do it myself. And so often he does that in people's lives. And it's really hard to watch people we care about getting beat up in life or going through hard things, especially when it's a result of their own sinful behavior. And you know that all they need to do is turn to God and stop and they'll be delivered. But here's what we need to be praying for. If they're going down that route and those things are happening, Lord, please, in your grace, show them their need for your help so they turn to you and are saved from this destruction that's happening in their life. Amen? And God can use that, and he will use that. He's used that in so many of our lives, he'll use it in others. And maybe that's exactly what happened here in Sosthenes. He beats him down this low place, and guess who's there to love him and console him and point to Jesus? The Christians. And he ends up getting saved. So it says in verse 18, After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him, Priscilla and Aquila at uh, Syncrie, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. So Paul leaves Corinth uh, one and a half years after, as verse 11 said, he was there for a year and a half. He leaves. He heads for the province of Syria. If you remember Syria, kind of above Israel. So basically he's heading home. He's heading to the church in Antioch um, to conclude his second missionary journey. And he starts this journey, and, and he's taking Priscilla and Aquila with him. But before he departs, it says he gets a haircut. Uh, Syncrie, um, is, uh, is verse 18 says he was under a vow. Now, the vow that's probably being spoken of here, if you guys are familiar with your Bible, you can look at this later again. I'm not going to go there. But number six talks about this Jewish vow that was called a Nazarite vow. If you guys are familiar with the guy named Samson from the Bible, the big strong guy? And he was a Nazarite. And so like under a Nazarite vow, basically uh, a Jew would consecrate or purify themselves um, for God for a set period of time. Sometimes it was like an act of thanks for something. Sometimes it was maybe uh, a sense of lamination, lamentation or mourning. Sometimes it was just like they were seeking the Lord for wisdom. But there were three things they would do. They basically wouldn't take any food or drink from the vine or the grapevine. Um, they wouldn't go anywhere near a dead body, and then they wouldn't cut their hair. And typically, by Jewish tradition, what would happen is at the end of this vow, you would go to the temple, you would cut your hair as an act of worship to God, and you'd, you'd basically leave it there at the altar. And so the fact that Paul completes this vow, but he doesn't follow that true Jewish tradition, like he's cutting it before he actually gets to the temple, it would seem to indicate that the heart behind his vow, rather than the religious ritual is what was most important to him. And we don't know the exact reason he's doing this, but it shows us that Paul wasn't ashamed of his Jewish heritage. Basically, he had, he had, he had, did not have a problem with their culture and their customs as long as that people weren't looking to those things to um, make sure they were right with God. You know, basically that 
salvation or your rightness with God can only come through faith in Jesus, which he, he faithfully preached wherever he went, whatever synagogue. He didn't believe this is what made him right with God. But he wasn't against the culture. And he actually tells us in uh, 1 Corinthians 9 that he would, when he was with the Jews, he would go along with the things they did, the, the culture that he had been brought up in, so it would be easier for him to minister to them. It says, 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23, even though I'm a free man, this is Paul talking, with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. Even though I'm not subject to the law, I did this so I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. When I'm with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from that law so I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. When I'm with those who are weak, I share their weakness, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. Awesome principle right there. And we see it reflected in his life right here. And that is that it's not always about what you have to do or what you don't have to do, like what God says is good or what's bad. Sometimes it's about what you should do in order for you to be able to relate to people and have that opportunity to share Jesus with them. So long as you, that you don't violate God's word. That's what he's saying. He's like, yeah, I followed the law or I didn't follow the law when I was with the Gentiles because either way, it didn't really matter. I wasn't looking for that to save me. So as long, I never violated God's word, but I did what I needed to do so that people, I'd have a way to relate to people and share the gospel with them. Amen? So that's a good principle for us to remember, all right? Because there's lots of opportunities in our daily lives to get those ends with people, to establish those relationships where people understand you actually care about them and they're willing to listen to what you have to say so you can share Jesus with them. Amen? All right, so that was Paul's life. And we see a good example of it. And then it says in verse 19, and they came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So the door finally opened for Paul to go to Ephesus. If you guys have been tracking with us and you know your the scriptures, uh, a couple chapters ago, we saw him, uh, roughly about a two and a half year time period ago, that he tried to go to Ephesus, which would have been in the province of Asia. He tried to go there, but what happened? That's right. It says the Holy Spirit prevented him. We don't know exactly how it was, but somehow the Holy Spirit stopped him. Acts sixteen six tells us that, which he's allowed to go there now, which shows us that that wasn't a no from God. It was just a not yet. And God's timing is always perfect because what comes out of this visit of Ephesus is a flourishing church, right? Because he writes the book of Ephesians later to that church. And it, it, there were enough people here, um, you know, like it, it does, like he goes to the Jewish synagogue. It doesn't really say what, what happened there or it doesn't say anything else. But we know there's enough people initially saved here in this visit that he feels the need to leave Priscilla and Aquila to trusted believers behind to disciple them and we can't leave these guys alone we got to continue to teach them the word and help them know jesus and so he leaves them behind before he moves on 
And the church wants him to stay, but Paul insists that he needs to go, but that if God allowed, if it was God's will, he'd come again. Again, as I pointed out at the beginning, showing us that following the will of God is what was the driving thing in his life that kind of guided him on whether he was going to do something or not do something, all right? And it goes on in verse 22, and it says, when he landed at, when he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. So Caesarea, again, is, was in Israel. So he's back in his home country. Um, when it says he went up to the church, that's probably speaking of Jerusalem, because if you guys know Israel's kind of territory, Jerusalem is at an elevated elevation. So you often see in the Bible, it says we're going up to the Lord's house or up to Jerusalem. And that's why they say that because it's elevated. It's actually lower than Caesarea. It's like just south of it. And then after going to visit the church in Jerusalem, he went down lower in elevation, even though it's north to Antioch, which was his home church, this completing his second missionary journey. And I'm sure just like when he came home the first time, he was super excited to tell everyone, his church family, of all the Lord had done on this second trip. And it says in verse 23, after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia in Phrygia, strengthening all disciples. So those regions should sound familiar because basically those are areas he visited during his first couple missionary journeys. So what he do- is doing here is that he's going back on his third missionary journey to revisit the believers that had gotten saved on those initial journeys to what? Strengthen or encourage him to check how they're doing how they're doing in their walks with the lord and 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 basically just like check up on him show that he cares by by visiting them in person those would have been churches that were like in tarsus derby lystra iconium um, all the different places he had gone before and in that desire there that he has to strengthen and encourage the churches that's the same thing that drives us when we go on our mission trips i know that because of covid the last couple of years we haven't been able to go on a lot before that. We usually have at least a couple every year that we would bark on, but that was the heart of it. We go to visit those that have gone out from this church or that we support as a church family um, to strengthen them, to encourage them. And out of missionaries' own mouths, they always say that there is something that our presence being there, that God uses our presence being there with them that can't be accomplished any other way. And they always feel encouraged by it to keep going have a certain missionary friend that's always like it's like a shot of adrenaline that the lord knows right when we need it and so prayerfully we're always praying for those opportunities to go and visit them and that's one of the main reasons we go and do that now to circle back to the thing i started out with at the beginning i want to spend the rest of our time talking about what it looks like to live a life submitted to god's will as paul gives us a great example of that here and throughout his whole life. And it just seemed fitting to kind of focus on it to make sure we all understand what the Bible says about God's will. And the reason, the reason, just to make it clear, if you don't really know this, that we want God's will for our life, all right? Because our tendency in our flesh is to think that our will is the best will. What we want, what we think is best is, is best. But here's the thing. Romans 12, 2, Paul tells us that God's will for you is always good, pleasing, thank you, Rich, and perfect. Thank you, someone else said that. Good, pleasing, and perfect. How many of you can say that every decision you've made in life has led 
to good, pleasing, and perfect things. None of us, right? God is the only one that can say, a hundred out of a hundred, all the time, my will for you is always going to be good, pleasing, and perfect. So that's the reason why this is so important. We should listen to this, all right? Now, the first thing I want you to note, if you're a note taker, write this down. God has a specific will for your life. You are not just stumbling around doing things by accident, okay? Psalmist tells us in Psalm 139, 16, you saw me before I was born. He's talking to God. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. That's for all of us. All right. Now we are responsible for making choices that affect our life. But God is sovereign. And still has a plan that he's in control of. And those two things work together. Whatever free will we've been given is always within God's sovereignty. The way I heard it explained once, because these things are kind of like, we can't fully understand them because we just don't think on the level with God. And I'm okay with that. Because if I could think on the same level as God, he's not a big enough God to worship, all right? But having said that, the way I've heard it explained that made sense to me, it's kind of like you're playing chess against like a 10-time world chess champion, all right? Somebody that just... they're you're going to lose badly, okay? And the thing is, you can make whatever move you want, but that person you're playing is already 10 moves ahead of you, and it's only a matter of time before they get you into checkmate. All right? We make these moves, but God is sovereign. He's in control. He has this good plan for each of us. And then Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.10 how to know and how to follow him into that plan. He says in Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago or his will. You see, in order to know God's will and be able to live it in your life, you have to know Jesus first. Why? Because you don't know God apart from Jesus. Your sin, your imperfection, which we all have, has separated us from God. God is perfectly righteous. So that means that if you are imperfect in any way, you have any flaw in you, that he has to justly deal with it. Because he's perfectly just right on the spot. And the wages of sin is death. That's the penalty for it. So God, because of his great love for you and knowing there was nothing you could do to reconcile yourself to him, to make yourself right, so you could have a relationship, which is what he created you for. He sent his son, God in the flesh, Jesus, to live a perfect life and die a sinner's death, not for his sin, for my sin, for your sin, so you could receive that gift of salvation. You could be forgiven, acknowledging your need to be forgiven, acknowledging your need for that gift, acknowledging your need for Jesus. That makes you right with God. And once you're right with God, then you have a relationship with him and he can give you and tell you that good and perfect and pleasing will and then lead you, help you go into it. Those good works, they're not just works. They're good things he has for you. He's planned for you long ago. And this is what gives us significance and value in our life that we can always be confident in. It's why you don't have to receive praise 
from people. It's why you don't have to do those achievements that you're striving for to feel valued or worth. I'm not saying those things are bad, but if our value and worth are tied to those things, guess what? And you've really realized this. You're not always going to get the pat on the back that you deserve from somebody or the acknowledgement, and you're not always going to achieve what you set out to achieve. And guess what? There's always going to be more things to achieve. And you're always going to, your value, if it's in those things, it's, you're, you're going to, it's going to be questioned. You're never going to feel like you're doing what you need to or being, it's being affirmed in your life that you're worthy or valuable. But God here says, you're my masterpiece. To every single one of us, this isn't as a whole, each one of you, he's created to be a masterpiece. All right? And if you need to be reminded of just how valuable you are to him, just look at the cross. Because the value he said you were worth to him was worth his son dying for you. So you could know him. And that's what he wants us to base our value on. And the enemy, when we're trying to base it in other things, he loves to take that. And he loves to get you to question your value, to question your importance in life. Because he knows he can get you to a place of trying to kill, steal from, and destroy you. Those are his only goals. And I see it way more than I would like with people struggling with worth and value and having depression and suicidal thoughts because of it. And it's all lies from the enemy. And maybe that's a word for someone, even someone maybe watching online. You are God's masterpiece. And it's through Jesus that you will understand that and you will find significance and value that God intends for you. God has made you unique and special to accomplish good, significant things that can't be done by anyone else. Every single one of us are made to be a part of his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So, God has a specific will for you. The next logical question is, how do we determine his will for our lives? Well, first and foremost, there's an absolute will of God. That's what what I call an absolute will of God. And that is whatever God's word says is good for you, you should do. It's his absolute will. You don't have to question it. If it says don't do it, it's bad. No question, all right? Now, but the thing that trips us up that we're always, we're trying to figure out most of the time is what is what I call the immediate will of God. What is the will of God in any immediate situation that doesn't necessarily have a black and white answer in scripture that we need to make a decision on, okay? What career should I pursue? Who should I marry? What church should I go to? Should I go to college? There's tons of things in God's word, like James 1.27, where we know we're supposed to do them, like taking care of widows and orphans. But how do we do that specifically in, in life? Do we adopt? Do we give to an organization that does that? Do we go serve an organization? Tons of different ways. So this is what I'm talking about, like the, the immediate will of God. And well, even though God's word doesn't always tell us what to do for every decision we have to make in life, it does tell us how to determine what God wants you to do in any given decision you have to make. And the first step is to ask him what his will is or to pray. Okay, it's not always our first inclination. Our first inclination is to figure it out on our own. But the first step is to pray. James 1.5 says, if you need wisdom, 
Ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. God, his time is not wasted by you. He loves it when you come to him for things you don't understand or you don't know. And all you have to do is ask. So often I'm at a point where I'm fearful, I'm worried, I'm struggling with figuring something out. And I remember I've never even asked God for his wisdom on this. That's probably something I should do since it says I should do that first. Ask him and he'll generously give it. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. I love this passage. It's on coffee cups and stuff. But if you really look at it, this is my tendency. It says to do the opposite of what it says. It says in verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do for he will show you which path to take. So go to God, ask him for help, lean on him instead of doing what you think. See, I, my tendency is to go backwards on that. I do what I think first. And then when things get really bad or I can't figure it out, I go to God. And he's like, no, 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 don't do that. Go to me first. Don't lean on your own understanding. And then I'll be able to direct you. Paul telling us in Philippians 2.13, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. So when we're seeking God for direction, this is how it should happen. God puts the desires in you for what he wants you to do. And then he empowers you to do it. Now, one might ask, well, how can I be sure that the desire I have is God's desire? And that's a good question, because the Bible also warns us that your heart's deceitful. In essence, you can't trust your feelings. It says in uh, Jeremiah 17, 9, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. That's a good one to remember because you see a lot of, of, of the world's point of view is basically follow your feelings. Do what you feel. No, don't do that. All right. Yes, we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. Yes, leading us, but we're still in our flesh. So what God's given us first and foremost to check our feelings is his word. If what you're feeling is contrary to what God says is good and right, chuck it. It's not the Lord talking to you. Okay. So we've got the word, but also we have God to lead us and give us these desires that are good for us, his will, what he wants us to do. And the psalmist tells us how to, in a sense, make sure those desires are right in Psalm 37, 4, where he says, take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. Or basically, in essence, here's the thing. Find your joy in God. Find your joy in his word. Find your joy in the things of the Lord. And then he will give you the desires of your heart. That doesn't mean he's going to give you what you want. It means that he will replace your desires with his desires. If he is the ultimate joy in your life. Now, again, this is, I usually do the opposite of this. My joy is found in my desires. What I mean by that is I think that if I have this thing or if this this situation works out the way I want, I'll be joyful. And then when it doesn't, I'm not joyful. And God's like, no, no, no. Take your joy in me. Take your joy in the significant plan I have for you and the promises I've made for you and, and who I have for you or who I say you are. And then you'll be able to receive my desires in your life. So it's another thing we have to check, right? That doesn't mean you can't ever make plans or have personal desires on your own. But 
is with anything else with God, we always have a loose grip on it. Ultimately, our desire isn't in our will or what we think is best happening. It's in God and what he has for us, knowing that his will is good, pleasing, and perfect. That allows us to be submitted and surrendered so that God is able to lead us. And, and Paul actually gives us a great example in this text where he's just like, yeah, I'd love to come back and visit you if God wills. Um, James tells us how to look at like approaching our plans in life the right way in James chapter 4, 13 through 16. He says, look here, you who say today or tomorrow we are going to a certain town and we'll stay there a year. We will do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while, then it's gone. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you are boasting about your own pretentious plans, and all such boasting is evil. It's evil because it, 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 you're, you're being prideful. You're thinking you're better than God or you know more than God. It's a lack of humility to have that kind of attitude of like, I'm going to plan my life out because I know everything that's going on. You don't know anything. Like like James points out, you don't even know if you're going to be here tomorrow. God knows everything. He's got the whole plan for you. And it's good, pleasing, and perfect. So the better thing to do is not that it's not... It, you can have plans, but you're always bringing those in a sense to the altar like, God, are these good plans? Or do you have something better in mind? You just have that submitted and surrendered heart. And that's ultimately one of the main reasons we aren't able to know God's will for us Because even when we're asking him to direct us, we can be so adamant on things being the way we want or the answer being the answer that we want to hear from him that we're not willing to hear any other answer. I've had that happen to me more than a couple times, like blatantly. You know, I've used this example before for a lot of different other things, but it's a really good one because um, basically if you guys have heard our story of how we got the house we lived in today, it was pretty miraculous. There was somebody in church that basically after a sermon um, sent me an email saying they wanted to talk to me about something, which I automatically thought was horrible. But it turned out they were like, I felt like the Lord prompted me to reach out to you because we're going to be moving here soon and we want to sell you our house. Like like crazy deal, just like what they needed out of it, something we could never afford it any other way. And... Um, I text my wife when I got that message because we were in the process of trying to build a home and it was just a big frustrating process that wasn't working out. And so I text her and she calls me and she's crying and she's like, I was just driving with the boys in the car and I was praying about this very thing. And I said, Lord, you need to show us what to do because she was just at this point of total frustration again, trying to us trying to make things happen before seeking the Lord. And she was seeking the Lord and she specifically prayed, if you could do something really obvious so my boys could see it. I tell people, every time we've prayed that, almost every time we've prayed that, God does something really, it's like he likes to show off in front of our kids. But I literally text her, and she's just like emotional at it. But here's the thing. We drive by this house, and I'm like, oh, it's too big for us. It's not. It's more than we need. It's not really, in my wife's like, it's not really the style I wanted. And it sat there for like three months while we just tried to pursue our own plans because it wasn't what we thought was best. It wasn't what we wanted. And sure enough, the Lord brought us to our senses. He didn't let us make the mistake eventually. And, and, and we're in that house now. And there were tons of reasons we needed that house that we didn't even foresee. Needed that extra space for family living with us and doing foster care. Things that we never even foresaw. But God had all those good works for us prepared ahead of time. Amen? 
but we can blind ourselves and we get frustrated. God's not leading us. No, no, no. We're just so set on our way. We're not listening. We're not hearing. And also, as we saw in today's passage with Paul going into Ephesus, timing is important too. It wasn't a no two and a half years later. It was just a not yet. And Peter tells us in First Peter 5, 6 through 7, he says, Humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. Why do we pray? Because God cares for us. And it takes humility to understand that God is way more mighty than us. So that's why we pray. But he says, at the right time, meaning that any other time is wrong. At the right time, God will answer. He'll lift you up to a place of honor, betterment, where you're best off. And as with Paul being stopped from Ephesus, like I said, it wasn't a no. And sometimes we look at like a a silence in our minds. Like we're not hearing what God says or we see a door that we wanted to go through closed and we think that it's a no or he's not answering us. And it's none of those things. It's just a not yet. Just wait on me. The Bible says, blessed are those who wait on the Lord because we don't wait on the Lord. We need to wait. Often we think things we need an answer or things need to happen way sooner than they ever do. That's not, they don't. It's just we think that. We just need to wait on the Lord. So once you have that direction from the Lord that you're seeking though, right? We've established that God does have a specific will for you. And then once, you know, how, how to receive it from him. And once you have that though, here's the last thing I want you to know. Are you willing to do what God wants you to do? Are you willing to do what God wants to do? Especially if it isn't what you would choose for yourself as it takes faith to believe that God knows better than you do and obey him when it doesn't make sense in your own understanding, all right? But that again can be a reason why you think you're not getting direction from the Lord because you're just like, "Uh uh-uh, that's not what I want. I don't see how that can be good for me at all. And we're just so adamant that we're not going to listen that we think we're not hearing from them. Again, the reason us wanting to listen is Jesus says in Luke eleven twenty eight, blessed are those who hear and obey the word of God. It's not just hearing it, it's obeying it, trusting, even despite our own understanding. Again, I have lots of instances in my life in this, sometimes where I didn't listen, other times where I did. Most recently, when I became a pastor, it made no sense to me. I was involved in fruitful ministry. I was faithfully serving in, and I had a good job that was a mission field that allowed me to do those things. And, you know, we were comfortable in, in those things we were doing. It was like, oh, yeah, this is, this is great. I didn't see myself being a lead pastor. That wasn't part of the plan. But God likes to throw us into things that we aren't part of the plan, so we're fully relying on him because on our in our reliance of him, he gets to do cool things, which show us how real he is. It builds our faith. And so those are the things really where the rubber meets the road. And we got to say, all right, Lord, doesn't make sense to me. In my understanding, I don't know why I'm doing this, but guess what? You told me, and that's all that matters. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna walk through that door in faith. And then when you're willing to, in a sense, step in the Jordan because God told you to, the whole sea parts. And all of a sudden you see God do amazing things that you couldn't have seen any other way. Amen? So as the worship team comes up here, I just want to end 
on this because I really sense that this was a specific word of the Lord for us as a church and most assuredly for some people that are here today. And man, if you understood the spiritual battle I got leading up to this, man, I almost called it a night last night and told Michael, you got to film for me. I do not feel good. And I was suffering anxiety leading up to here and it went away as soon as I started talking. And that's what I mean by like spiritual battle. So this is definitely a, just it's an affirmation to me that it's the word of the Lord for you. Remember, God has a specific plan for your life. Maybe someone need to be reminded of that. Maybe you have a specific thing that you are wanting direction on. Okay? I can't tell you what the answer is. I'm not the Holy Spirit. But God wants to. Make sure you're seeking him for that. And if you have no clear direction yet, wait until he gives it to you. Don't worry. Don't try to make something happen. Seek the Lord and wait and trust him. Ask him to reveal it to you. And make sure your heart's submitted and surrendered, okay? Because maybe you have gotten an answer, but you're not recognizing it or listening because you're, you're, you're asking with an answer already in mind. And you don't want to hear anything else. You're not willing. It's in a sense like you're going to God with your fingers in your ears. And you're like, eh. <laughs> like kids do sometimes. I don't want to hear what you have to say unless it's this. And maybe if you can just go to God and say, all right, Lord, I really think that this is the best way, but you know what? I'm not you. I, I know you remind yourself. I know you know all things. I know you have this good, pleasing, perfect plan for me. So Lord, what is it? If it's not this, just show me, direct me, lead me into it. And maybe you'll more clearly be able to see what it is the Lord has for you then. And one thing I would point out too, Judges 6 gives us a good example of this. If you're not sure, it's okay to ask for confirmation. I think sometimes we we think that God's going to be annoyed with us for asking for wisdom, even if we he's given it and we're just like, ah, I'm not so sure. Trust me, there was lots of confirmation I asked for in becoming a pastor. And God went down that checklist and did those things over time. Took away every excuse I had, basically, not to do it. And Judges 6 is a good example because Gideon, you know, he, God raises him up to lead the Israelites against this army. And he's like, I'm a coward, I'm not... He's like, no, you're a mighty man of valor, and he's not convinced. And so he does ask for some pretty miraculous things. He's like, I'm going to throw a fleece outside. May there be dew everywhere but on the fleece, and then that's not enough. And he does it. He's like, well, I want dew just on the fleece. And God doesn't get mad, doesn't get impatient. He answers him. So I ask for a confirmation. A lot of the time figuring out the will of the Lord in, in your life, it's kind of like putting together one of those big puzzles. You ever put together, have you guys put together those giant puzzles, you know, like on, like you put on a table or whatever? I have family that loves to do that when we get together. But you like you get a piece and you can kind of know the general vicinity of it because of the colors on it and stuff, right? So you kind of know what God's like like that's our life. We kind of know what God's doing, but you gotta like move it around to try to fit where it actually goes. That's usually how it works. He doesn't give us all the details, he gives us just enough to know where to go, and then he clarifies it once we're there. Amen? That's okay. I know we'd like the billboard right in front of us that says, do this, and then this will happen, and this it doesn't work that way. That's not faith. And here's the other thing. If you knew everything that would happen 
in the future, you probably would no way say yes to some things because looking at them and not knowing what God is trying to teach you in those things would scare you to death. Let me trust. There's a lot of things that have happened in the last five years. I said, no, if I knew ahead of time, I would not have been a pastor. But having said that, the Lord has taught me how to like things about his word, things about himself, give me a greater understanding of his grace and love that I couldn't learn any other way. So man, I'm so thankful for it. But God saves us from making the mistake of freaking ourselves out. Amen. Last thing, when the Lord answers, trust and obey for there's no other way. Sing it. Happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. That's where you're going to be happiest, folks. It's when we listen. So when you get that direction, just trust and obey. God has surely given you no reason not to trust him. And you'll experience the happiness, the blessing that he intends for you. Amen? Amen. Well, we're going to have our prayer team around the room. And I really encourage you right now. I, I Like I said, I don't know specifically what's going on in your life, but I'm sure in a room this big, this many people watching online here, that there's probably things you guys are trying to figure out in your lives and you're looking for direction. And now it's a perfect opportunity. Don't wait till you get out the door. I'm going to seek the Lord right when I get. No, no, no. Be a doer of the word right now. Seek the Lord for direction. Submit your will to his and wait upon him to give an answer. Maybe it'll be today. Maybe it'll be a year from now. I don't know. But his timing's perfect. And it'll be good, pleasing, and perfect, whatever it is. We'll have our prayer team around the room. If, if you want to come up and, and get prayer, maybe you're a newer believer. And you, this prayer thing, you just feel like you don't know what it means to talk to God. It's a great opportunity to, to bear your burden with your brothers and sisters, as the Bible says. And we can pray with you. And even if, if you're a believer that knows how to pray, sometimes... That's what we need. We need to know other people are praying with us and, and bearing that burden and lifting it up and agreeing with God. There's a special blessing promise with that. So come and get prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you so much that you have a will for us. We thank you that we're not just bumbling our ways through life or we don't have to. I know it, it felt like that before I knew you in my life. It still feels like that when I choose to try to handle things myself. But Lord, that is not what you have for us. Just like last week we talked about how you have not given us a spirit of fear. Your will is not for us to be afraid. Your will for us is to let you lead us through this life into those good works you prepared for us long ago. And we want to let you do that. I know that 100% of the time when I'm not, when that's not happening, it's my fault because I'm too adamant on my way or I'm not I'm impatient and I'm not waiting. It's not you. We know that you love to generously give wisdom when we lack it. So Lord, I pray that your people that us would reach out to you with those things that we're wondering about that we're trying to figure out and look to you for help and that we would experience that guidance you promise us and be at peace in the waiting for that guidance, Lord, knowing that you've got things under control. Even if we don't see it, you're really working these things out in your sovereignty, Lord. That gives us sure confidence in anything going on in our lives. And all God's people said, amen.